Our results, our performance, our culture, it's determined by our behaviors. But what drives our behaviors? Behaviors are driven by our mindset. So often we get really caught up in addressing and fixing the behaviors as leaders, but we've really failed to address the underlying mindset. What does this look like? Well, it means when our athlete's behavior is unacceptable, we see them as a problem. We see them as an obstacle, not a person. When their behavior is exceptional, well, we see them as a good thing. We, we see them as a vehicle for our success, but still not a person. But people, they see through all that. They can our, sense our heart posture, our mindset towards them. So instead of first focusing on correcting the behavior, we need to first refocus on how we see ourselves and how we see other people. We've got to address our mindset. Today's guest is Sam Whitney. He is a director at the Arbinger Institute, which is a global training and consulting firm that helps individuals, teams, and organizations achieve breakthrough results by helping them shift from a default self-focus, which they call an inward mindset, to an others-inclusive focus of an outward mindset. And they've authored multiple books, one of those being The Outward Mindset, but my favorite is Leadership and Self-Deception, uh, which has honestly been one of the most influential books I've ever read in my life. So I was really, really excited for this interview, and I'm really excited to share my conversation with Sam. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast, brought to you by Thrive on Challenge. I'm JP Nurbin, joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. Each week in about 30 minutes, we discuss important principles and strategies of transformational leadership. At Thrive on Challenge, we help coaches to raise the standards and strengthen the relationships in their program because we know this type of culture produces better leaders, better people, and better results. To learn more about how we can help you, go to thriveonchallenge.com, where you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter and get the coaching notes to every episode of this podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. This is an interview that I have been waiting for for years. I remember reading the book, Leadership and Self-Deception by the Arbinger Institute nearly five years ago, and that book just blew me away. It has been foundational in a shift in my coaching. It's been foundational in the work that I do to support other coaches, but it's also really been foundational in the way that I try to live my life. And so I'm excited to have you here as a representative of the Arbinger Institute today and to share a little bit about some of the concepts that you guys teach, as well as just a little bit of your own story. And I think that might be a really great place to start is you know, how did you end up at the Arbinger Institute? And can you explain to our listeners a little bit about who is or the Arbinger Institute and, and what do they do? Yeah, great. Yeah. Well, it's great to be here, JP and Nate. And um, I'm excited to be able to talk about Arbinger a bit. Um, you know, I came to Arbinger six years ago now. Um, before coming to Arbinger, I read Leadership and Self-Deception probably eight years ago. And uh, the book just knocked me over. It was It was such a great book. It was it's written in kind of a parable form. It's a story, um, all, all grounded. I learned later in true stories. It's all true stuff, but just kind of shrouded in, in what would be considered a fiction. But it's, uh, you know, the book deals with a core concept of self-deception, how it is that as people, we can hide the truth about ourselves and the impact we have on others from ourselves. And then when we're confronted with the truth, how we resist the realities that really would ultimately be helpful and sensible to confront, right? And uh, we kind of live in a 
pseudo virtual reality of our own creating and how we get trapped there. And I realized, you know, one of my biggest self-deceptions going through life was that I was a good person. I was helpful and good, and, and uh, I just assumed people liked me and that I had a good impact on other people. And as I read that book and got acquainted with Arbinger's tools, it helped to open my eyes to the fact that actually I wasn't being helpful to others. I was deeply selfish and uh, deeply self-deceived about who I thought I was. And so while that was a sobering experience to read the book, it was also empowering because I realized that I had a lot more freedom and control to actually influence and help other people than I had thought I had. I just, before reading Arbinger's book, I just assumed people were the way they were, and I was the way that I was. And conflict and interactions were just going to just going to land wherever the dominoes fell, right? It was just going to be a random combination of personalities, and, and my life's success and, and direction was just going to be kind of, kind of faded in that sense, right? Um, I think it was Carl Jung who said that until you make the unconscious conscious, it, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will control your life and you will call it fate. Um, and that was kind of me. And then reading the book woke me up to the idea that actually, no, I have a lot more control over stuff and myself in, in particular. And uh, it led to me meeting and marrying my wife, uh, really impactful for me. And then um, I, I was at the time in a training and development role at a company here in Utah. And um, I reached out to Arbinger. I wanted to continue to do training and development. And I reached out after having loved Arbinger's books and said, look, I'll sweep the floors. I'll clean the toilets, whatever you need me to do. Just let me be around you guys. I need to be able to talk about this stuff. And I need to be able to be close to people who are writing about it. And they were kind enough to give me a job. I didn't have to clean the toilets, but I did. Uh, I was given <laughs> an entry-level position at Arbinger, very, very luckily, and uh, rose through Arbinger rather quickly. Arbinger at the time was about seven or eight people, and now we're 50 people. And so um, I now direct the global business development for Arbinger and um, kind of grown up there as a person. I now have three kids. I mean, I'm a very different person than I was six years ago. Um, as far as Arbinger goes, it's very short history. It's about 40 years old. Arbinger started in 1978, um, 79, on the work of Dr. Terry Warner, who was a, a philosopher and a scholar who really grappled with this problem of self-deception. Self-deception is actually a problem at the heart of human sciences. It's very unknown. But for example, Sigmund Freud's psychological career kicks off with him really grappling with this challenge. How is it that people know something and yet hide it from themselves? It's, it's a paradox. They call it the self-deception paradox. And so Terry grappled with that and his academic work and others, both at Harvard, Oxford, and Yale, kind of um, gave birth to Arbinger. And then that more philosophical work was distilled down into corporate training and development, trying to get this, these ideas into more of a colloquial language and also into a more helpful way for people to digest them. And that's what gave birth to the book ultimately. Uh, and then we've had, we have two other books as well called the anatomy of peace and uh, the outward mindset. And I mean, give or take that's 40 years of history in about 30 seconds. But, yeah. <laughs> so I'm fascinated by this change that you went through personally. Like what was that like for the people around you, your coworkers, your family members, your friends, as you experienced this change, did they notice that? And, and how would they have described it? That's a really cool question, JP. Um, I think it was shocking for people uh, because, you know, other people live with the assumption as well that things are just going the way they are, that you are who you are, and that they have to work around you, right? And suddenly you shift the rules of the game. Like you shift the, the, what you're going to say, you shift uh, how you see them, and, and they start to feel differently around you. Um, it definitely helped with, my wife says she'd never dated anyone like me before. She says, you were very unique. <clears throat> you thought of me as a person, you 
you actively thought about me. You know, it was about it was about us. It wasn't just about you. And uh, and my sister in particular, I had a pretty rough relationship with my sister. And um, there was a particular moment where we were we were arguing pretty pretty hard at a family event. And um, and I realized something at the moment. Arbinger had helped me see something that um, the reason why I was angry with my sister was because uh, I hadn't failed to be a good brother to her. And in this moment, like it just became very clear that I was angry with her for not being the sister I wanted her to be. But in reality, I had never been the brother that she needed me to be. And I admitted that to her. I said, look, I'm sorry if I'm angry with you because I just haven't lived up to who you need me to be. I'm just not a good brother. I, I don't call you. I don't get you presents on your birthday. I don't visit you. We don't ever go to lunch. We don't ever hang out. We don't ever talk, nothing. Um, and then she stopped right there and just said, well, actually, hold on. I haven't been a good sister to you. I don't do any of that crap either. And we both kind of reconciled immediately and realized that we haven't been, we've been angry at each other for not being the people we each needed. And that's the essence of self-deception. We hide the truth from ourselves through blaming people. Um, and so as soon as we let down that blame, suddenly there's a new possibility that I might actually be part of the problem. And that opens up a whole realm of possibilities. A lot of freedom comes in there. And so anyway, just in that particular case, it really transformed my relationship with my sister. Um, and other people just, you know, generally commenting or, or talking about how I had made a change. I had one guy in particular pull me aside um, and he was like, what's your deal? Like his name was Richard. And he said, what's your deal? Like what, what's going on with you? And I said, what do you mean? He's like, well, you're just like, people like you. Why do they like you? People don't like me. What's going on? Like, and I was like, I recommended the book to him. I said, Richard, read leadership and self-deception. I think you'll understand. And I never, I never followed up with him, but stuff like that, you know, it just, you start to make a wave in your life and people notice the turbulence, right? It's interesting. Sam, kind of later throughout your story and some of the stories in the course that you shared with JP and I, kind of before we got into this interview, I think there's a layer there and you talk a lot about finding self-awareness, perhaps from a different perspective, but also I think embedded in that is a sense of humility. Mm -hmm. I think there has to be a point there and you use this phrase over and over of seeing people as people. And mm -hmm. I think underneath of that, there has to be a bit of acknowledgement that like there's other people that are more important than me in this world. Right. Um, you want to speak to a little bit of just kind of how those things are woven together? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, one of my favorite uh, definitions for humility is just the ability to accept and acknowledge reality. Like that's all that it is. And reality actually turns out to be far more humbling than we try to make it out to be. It turns out we're not as important as we think we are. It turns out that there's a much bigger world out there than us, right? Just these truths that we hide from ourselves when we're living in not not living humbly. Um, but yeah, I think, and one one thing there, Nate, I'd say that what Arbinger's message is that other people matter kind of just as much as I matter, right? Like I matter as a person and other people matter too. And Part of being, uh, part of living outside of the box or getting free of self-deception, is to um, to really take that the re inner reality and humanity of other people into account. Um, you know, there's something that Arbinger's founder talks about where other people are constantly sending out signals for the things that they need and want. They're constantly calling on one another for help, whether it's their facial expressions, the way they act, the way they talk, the way they feel. And um, when we're trying to be, when we're, when we're in the box or we're self-deceived, we're really just putting up barriers, kind of blocking out those signals, saying, look, I hear you, but I'm not going to acknowledge it. I'm not going to acknowledge that I have stuff going on. I have my own stuff. It's more important. If I give up my stuff, I'll never get it done. And I'll just be spending my time doing your stuff. Can't handle that. I've got to block it out. 
and being outward or being out of the box, uh, free of self-deception means to just kind of lower those walls and let those signals in. Let the realities of other people affect me. Like I'm going to go about my life, but I'm going to go about my life in a way that acknowledges that JP, for example, has a life of his own. And what is the things that I'm going to do? What does that mean in terms of the impact it's going to have on him and his life? And that's that's kind of what it means to, I guess, to see someone as a person is to really, it's an allowing, it's a, it's a responsiveness to the reality of other people, right? I really resonate with your story, Sam, because it's kind of like mine in the sense that I was a coach and I was trying to make an impact and change my players. Like they were entitled, they didn't work hard. They had no, you know, they weren't responsible. They didn't hold themselves accountable. And I saw them as a problem, you know, and I tried a lot of different things, you know, character courses, leadership courses to try to change them. And I never could get through to them. And it was around the time I read leadership and self-deception, I started to have this awareness that, and it's, it's the change starts with me. You know, you talk about being outside the box, but when we're inside the box, when we're not seeing people as people, what does that look like? You know, what is that, you know, how are we seeing them? Yeah, JP, that's a cool, that's a really good question too. Um, I think uh, from inside the box, you know, we're living in a, in, a, in a world that isn't true necessarily. What we're doing is we're giving unequal weight to our personal experience versus the experience of others. Imagine a scale, it's, it's tipped in our favor, right? And we're really closed off and isolated from other people. We're ignoring a core reality, which is that as human beings, we are deeply interconnected with one another. Like our, our thoughts, our speech, our reality, our culture all come from other people. We learn to speak because our parents teach us to speak. Uh, we learn what it means to be a person by living amongst other people. We're given our language. We're given everything that we have. We have things to buy at the grocery store because someone else put them on the shelves, right? We have a car to drive because someone else built it for us. We have, you know, all these things, very little of our lives do we actually, do we actually control and do we actually generate self-generated? Like most of it is actually shared amongst all people. And so when we're in the box, we're thinking, we're, we're really just isolated and we're self-focused. And, and I talked about something earlier, which was when we're in the box, we're really blaming other people for our problems, right? We're exonerating ourselves through the medium, medium of blame. So for example, JP, if we're on a basketball team together and I'm in the box as a player and uh, I'm going to see other players as the problem, I'm going to exonerate my own performance, even though it might be poor. Maybe I'm not doing the things I should be doing. Maybe I'm not lifting and helping other players. Maybe I'm not putting in the work on the back end to really be the player I need to be. But I'm not going to see that in the box. All I'm going to see is a team that isn't cohesive and doesn't understand my talents. Right? I'm just going to push back uh, constantly. And that's the nature of blame. Blame says you're to blame and I am not. It's an exonerating move, right? It, it actually gets me out of, out of having to do the things I feel I should do. And in that space, that's what's so funny about change is that when we feel other people need to change, it's most likely that we're the ones that need to change most. Because we're actually in that space, we're in that box, right? We're not seeing clearly. And what's funny about the box is that our emotions jump in to justify us as well. It's not just a, a way of thinking, it's a way of living and being. You know, I don't just, as the basketball player, think that my team is incompetent and not as understand me. I also feel that they don't. I feel offended by their lack of performance. I feel put off. I feel frustrated. And so what's really tough about the box is that the box creates a little labyrinth within which I'm trapped. 
Every turn leads me back into the box further. Every feeling, every experience, every thought just reinforces the way that I see things. And what's worse is that when I'm in the box, I invite other people into their own boxes. I actually try to pull out of them justification, right? So going back to the basketball example, you know, I'm going to berate my fellow players for not doing what I think they should do. Well, the problem is that doesn't invite them to want to pass me the ball at any point during a game. It doesn't make me them like me or feel loyal to the team cause. It just invites them to resist me and to resist the team. So from in the box, not only do I experience a world of isolation and a world of disconnectedness and a world of kind of fraught with danger and, and threats that I have to defend against, I also invite other people to do the same thing. And so I end up creating these little cycles. In Arbinger, we call them collusions. They're little conflicts that are generated by my box. And, and I get people into their boxes. And then these conflicts become entrenched and difficult to undo and difficult to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to get free of. But uh, I wonder if that's kind of a, if that's helpful to JP to kind of describe what that world looks like. You know, Sam, it, it is an interesting way of trying to put language to something that I think is a common human experience. I know with our team this year, one of the things that I've been trying to build into our culture is a recognition that when we are playing our best and when we enjoy the experience of being together the most, it is when we are outward focused. It's when right. we are giving that experience to someone else rather than demanding that somebody give that experience to me. And I think one of the things that's challenging for coaches and, and you know, we're working with teenagers and we're working with college students, we know it when we see it. We know it when we feel it, when it's right and when we're in that place. But it's really hard to put language to it in order to create conversation to be able to examine it and help players to work toward doing that more frequently. And I'm just curious as you you know, you talked about the box and it's in the training and it's in the book. Where did that analogy come from? What's the history of that language? Yeah. So that's really interesting. You know, um, Terry Warner, our founder, used to say, <clears throat> well, he's still alive. But he, he used to say, he said before that um, things remain invisible until they are named, right? Like language actually um, allows us to see, but it also limits what we can see. And so if something isn't named, it just, we just kind of, we just, we just let it go. And so Arbinger's, most of Arbinger's work has been trying to slap names on something. That's, I think, one of the biggest contributions that science has had to our, to our entire world. Science is the discovery of things that were already there, but we're just putting names to them so we can see them and understand them and study them, right? Like disease anciently used to be called curses or, um, or in, in like uh, people used to call them, uh, you were possessed, but now we call it infection or we call it bacteria. And those names are more precise, they're more helpful. They help us understand the nature of things and therefore we become more productive. And so Arbinger's, Arbinger's work has been for the last 40 years trying to name these phenomenon properly so that we can get at them with more, with more precision and be more helpful. So the idea of the box is, for example, this one particular analogy is what it's like to live in a state of self-deception. You're closed off from others. You're sitting in an isolated sort of box and everything that comes in through the box is distorted by the box itself. So you may pay me a compliment, Nate, but as, if I'm not seeing you as a person, if I'm seeing you as a threat, I'm going to be in a position in the box to take offense to your compliment, to maybe perhaps see it as you being manipulative. What do you want from me? What are you trying to get? Like, what's the deal? Versus when I'm out of the box, I don't distort what you say. I, I receive it with gratitude. I understand that you're a person trying to compliment me and help me. And does that make sense? It, it's the, the box creating a barrier through which our experience is filtered. 
I like this idea around creating language, you know, naming certain things. And, and one of the things that has always stuck with me from the books is this idea when we're inside the box, we don't see people, we see obstacles, we see vehicles, or people are just irrelevant to us. And I think when we talk about transformational versus transactional coaching, transactional coaches, we see people as not people, we see them as vehicles to help promote and further our career or get wins, or we see them as obstacles to that when they're not working hard, when they, when they're struggling with their attitude, they're, they're, you know, they're preventing us from being successful, or if they don't help us or hurt us, then they're just irrelevant. And how many times have I felt that as a player, but also made other players feel that. So it's just great language that I think helps us. And so I always appreciate that. Now, one of the things that transformational coaches get kind of accused of, and I think some people may hear this, oh, being inside the box and this, and they might say, oh, that's that sounds like soft leadership. Like it's just you're being soft. You're just letting people off the hook. You're, you know, you're taking responsibility, but they're never asking them to take responsibility for their behaviors. What do you say to that, that people that might accuse you of being soft as, as an organization or as types of leaders? Yeah, that's a really good question, JP. Um, you know, I think that we think about these two ways of being, you know, in the box, out of the box. There's really, there's no, there's really very little behaviors that I can't do in both, right? Like I can compliment you in the box, can't I? I can compliment you because I want to get something from you, JP. You're my coach and I want you to promote me in a particular way. I want you to put me in the game more. So I'm always sucking up to you. And it's like, but that's not, that's not helpful. That's not actually out of the box. It's, it's a soft behavior complimenting, but it's done from a position of trying to get what I want from someone else versus a compliment that's paid because I really want to recognize the fact that you did something good. And from outside the box, the compliment may even be more accurate, right? It might actually be true. And and you're going to receive that very differently from a player who compliments you to suck up versus a player who compliments you in in authenticity. As human beings, we we have the ability to feel other people's intentions. We know what they're about. Uh, We have this sense uh, when people are seeing us as people and when they're seeing us as obstacles or as vehicles or as irrelevant, right? We know. And you can very quickly test this. <clears throat> you know the people in your life who simply tolerate you. And you know the people in your life who truly, deeply love you and they care for you. You know the people who don't care about you at all, who don't even see you. And they're so, they're like, they're like red lights in a dark room. You just see them very clearly in your mind. You know exactly who these people are. But you also know who the people are who love you deeply, who care about you, and who see you. And those people are normally the people that <clears throat> you either look up to or the people who have influenced your life in the best ways, right? Your mentors, your, your, if you have a great parent or a great family member or a great friend in the past, you, you know immediately who these people are. And so, I mean, if you think about hard versus soft, you also got to think about what is your goal as a coach or as in, in anything you try to do. You're trying to pull out the best possible results from a team. Inviting that team to see you as a coach, as a person, and seeing them as people gives you the best possible opportunity to extract the greatest level of performance from that group of people because you're not creating collusions. You're not creating box-based conflicts where both groups are jockeying for who's right. You're creating authentic space where people can feel safe to bring their best to play. Going back to hard and soft, you know, there's a story I was told in a training recently where a subordinate and a boss, the boss has been going through Arbinger for years. And he told this story because this question came up. He said, look, I had a boss. I didn't deliver on a particular presentation. I, I left out a couple slides. I was in a, I was in a rush. I, I failed the group a little bit. 
walked in, gave the presentation, apologized and left. And then the boss came to my office next and he said, hey, thank you for your presentation today, but I need you to know, I need you, to know you let us down today. And uh, I hope you will never do that again. I looked him straight in the eye. He's like, and I have never felt more inspired in my entire life, he said. He's like, I knew this guy saw me. I knew he cared about my career. He cared about my future. He cared about me. And he was giving me tough feedback in a moment that I needed it. And he's like, and I've never let him down again. And I actually, it totally upped my game. I think that when we, we can do very hard behaviors outside the box, we can hold people accountable. We can, we can speak and say the truth in difficult ways in the right moments. And out of the box, we're actually going to have the awareness for when to apply those things, right? When we're in the box, we're going to yell at a player at the wrong time. <laughs> we're going to say that the, we're going to say something that isn't true that hurts their feelings or or damages their morale, all in the name of our own personal justification. But out of the box, we're actually going to be, have the sense to be able to say it right when it's right. So I think hard, soft, you can do either from either place. And when you do it from out of the box, you're more likely to hit the target, and you're more likely to have the impact you want to have from doing those harder behaviors and inspire that that loyalty that comes from actually treating people as people, right? All right, that's it for the first part of our conversation with Sam. Lots to digest there, lots to self-reflect on. Next week, we are going to talk about how we can get outside the box, uh, start to see people as people. In the meantime, Check out Leadership and Self-Deception, The Anatomy Peace and The Outward Mindset. Those are some powerful, powerful books by the Arbinger Institute. Also, if you're enjoying the Coaching Culture podcast, please be sure to, number one, subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Number two, leave us a review to help support our work. And number three, share the podcast to help spread this message.